0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content.
1: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
0: Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are the, the big four, or the dream team. Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Lorraine Campos from Crowell Mooring, and Jason Workmaster from Covington and Burling. Uh, guys, welcome to... That was a mouthful right there. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the show doing that every time, but guys, welcome to the show. <clears throat> Well, thanks for having us. Good to be here. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking, of course, legal stuff, uh, procurement legal stuff. And uh, we're really going to be talking about the Academy of Procurement (laughs) Arts and Sciences 7th Annual Rogers Awards. And I know that sounds a little strange for our listeners, so I'm going to let Jonathan Ernie explain what we're talking about here first.
1: Well, sure. So as you'll recall, Roger, years ago... Uh, when we were, uh, planning. had hair and yeah. Like well, it. now that was even longer oh, ago, and yeah. I had hair. But we we were planning the big event for one of the coalition's conferences, spring conferences. You wanted something exciting to just sexy up the uh, the talk about procurement, and we all collectively thought that well, there's so much so much excitement in procurement. We should have a is awards. it sexy too? <laughs> it is. It is sexy. It okay. is a procurement. Yeah, I don't know. I spent a lot of time alone. Um, (laughs) And when we decided, you know, we'd we'd have awards and we'd recognize some of the highlights and lowlights over the year. And and that became known as the Rogers. I don't remember who the heck Roger was, but some guy who worked at the hotel, I think. And, And so we named him the Rogers and... And over the years, we've done this every year. Okay,
0: and it's sort of like the what, what the Oscars, the Rodgers. Yeah, F- absolutely, F- indeed. I'm a little In- slow, but I no, no, <laughs>
1: indeed. If, if if you look, and, and maybe this will be posted somewhere, but but we we even have a little, you know, the the little c- cover sheet, which is the Academy of Procurement Arts and Sciences presents Seventh Annual Rodgers. We even stole, violated all sorts of copyright. This was David's idea, and we put the little little <laughs> I, picture of I, the.
0: Yeah, I used to work for David. I know all about. Yeah, him. And,
1: <laughs> right. So so we even have that little statuette, and uh, and then a little note down the bottom that says, "If anyone thinks this is." anything to do with the actual Academy Awards?
0: You take yourself way too seriously. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we got to get started. We got a lot of categories to go through, so let's start with the first category: the best film of limited importance. The
2: best oh. film of limited p- importance uh, this last year was <coughs> the proposed definitions of commercial products and commercial services in the House version of the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act. Well, pray tell, Jason, why, uh, why is that? Why is that, that of such? <laughs> It sounds important. It sounds very important. No, I know. It you scared the, me it's, even. It's a very long, very long act. Isn't it? You can get uh, the sense of why the show is so popular. <laughs> So every year, as probably many uh, of your listeners know, Congress, the one thing Congress gets around to doing every year that you can almost bank on (coughs) is that it passes the National Defense Authorization Act, which authorizes the Defense Department to spend money. It doesn't actually appropriate the money, but it does authorize the spending of money. And every year, uh, there are often procurement-related provisions in the National Defense Authorization Act. And this year, though. Nothing terribly important. They are proposing a definition, you know, as, as again, many listeners are pro- probably know who've been around federal procurement for a while. You know, there's been longstanding a definition of a thing called a commercial item. You know, the GSA right. schedules program is all based around the sale of commercial items. You know, FAR Part 12, we're familiar with that. And up, you know, everyone's been familiar for years that commercial items include both products, you know, both that Dell desktop computer and services, the IT tech coming out and maintaining the computer. Everybody's gotten used to that. Commercial items, both products and services. Well, Congress uh, has now decided, even though everybody's been going along fine with just the definition of commercial item, including two things, now that Congress in its infinite wisdom is going (laughs) to give us a definition of both a commercial product and a commercial service, which has no substantive impact on what those things are. At all. Right, but, so
0: they really didn't change the definitions of commercials other mm-hmm. than add the term service and product, yes. essentially, right? It, yes. was
2: a, it was a brilliant solution
1: to absolutely no problem at all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that sounds like our Congress yes. action. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it's, but it has come out of the 809 panel, which I think we might touch on a little bit more as we go along today. And one of the, you know, the, the 809 panel is a panel that was created by a for, a, a previous NDAA, a previous National Defense Authorization Act, and has been looking at all of procurement and suggesting ways that it can be made better, and and we expect to have some significant uh, legislative uh, suggestions come out of the 809 panel in the future. Safe to say, so far, this is not one of them.
0: Okay, absolutely. Well,
3: not yet.
2: Not yet, (laughs) not yet, not yet. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe, maybe, you know, next year's Rogers will have something exciting to say. Shouldn't we talk...
1: I don't know if you're a little bit about the subcontract piece. Sure. I, I think because when we talked about this at the at the coalition event, where people could have seen this live, by the way,
2: Absolutely. um were <laughs> we'll have all? to come next year, right? <laughs> next Absolutely. Break. But right. I
1: mean, we, we so Jason, may, maybe talk a little bit about that because sure. I think that, 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 that is, is thing.
2: that is somewhat more interesting. So there also for folks who have been around federal procurement for a long time, probably know if you go to the far and look up, often comes up the question. What is a subcontract under a government prime contract and why does that matter? It matters because there are lots of clauses in government prime contracts that say thou shalt flow this clause down to your quote unquote subcontractors. And so a fight that often happens between a prime and a putative sub is the sub, the sub is saying, and I'm using air quotes there for those of you who can't see me, uh, the- He did it so uh, well to everybody Everybody else out there. (laughs) The the sub will say, well, I'm not really a subcontractor. I am just a vendor. I am not. So don't flow all those clauses down to me. And if you go to the FAR and you try to answer this question, you look up a definition of a subcontractor, a subcontractor, you will find- scads of definitions in the current version of the FAR. Well, Congress in this, in the NDAA, and again, this is, this is still just the House bill. We're not yet, ha- we don't yet have final legislation, but the House bill contains a definition of subcontract that would apply across the board. So it would, it would, um, instead of having lots of competing definitions in the FAR, we would have a single definition. Uh, it's a very, it is quite a, quite a broad definition, but as uh, we were, were discussing before we, we came on the air here, um, there is a provision that also that, that draws a distinction between a subcontractor and then vendors who are selling stuff, and the stuff they're selling is um, an indirect cost of a government contract, and so it draws a distinction. So if you are an easy example is probably the best. If if you know if you're uh, the prime contractor is an IT contractor. So an IT services to the government, even IT services providers probably still have to buy some paper. So you got and you you, know, you gotten you buy your paper and if you're the paper supplier, the IT services prime contractor comes to you and says, "Well, you're a subcontractor. You got to accept all of my flow downs." And that this legislation, if it passes, would give the supplier a good argument. Look, I'm just an indirect cost. You sure. don't need you know paper but, is not a, a is not a necessary thing. It's not a direct charge <clears throat> to your uh, government. So, Jason, that,
0: that so that actually may have more than limited importance. Oh, that that was I, I uh, that was.
1: I think that this one is huge. And, we, again, we, we were all talking about this, but I think not, not a week goes by where I don't get a question from right. some client about to whom they have to flow down, right? And and mm-hmm. this distinction between a real subcontractor and, and this supplier-vendor is really critical. I think this, that language is going to help a lot of companies.
0: Okay, so next category, best supplemental written work.
3: And the Roger goes to the DOD commercial item handbook. So <laughs> do earlier do this year, DOD, focusing on you know, following what Jason said, focusing on commercial items, uh, publish a handbook, um, 67 pages for the first part alone on commercial item um, definitions. And uh, the second section is part B is commercial item, uh, pricing of commercial items. As we've gone through this, we believe (laughs) that this is the best supplemental um, written work because there's very little direction that we tend to get from the DOD on commercial items. And so we commend the DoD in putting together this handbook for us. There's lots of graphs, there's a number of flowcharts and honey. pictures. So for those of you that are that have a reading level similar to my uh, nine-year-old, you'll find it kind of easy to follow along in the in the graphs as you're moving along. One of the things that uh, that we'll talk about, or you know, just to mention, is that in the handbook that that dovetails with some of the other topics we're going to be talking about. There's more information on market research that contracting officers need to be doing in making a commercial line determination. Mm-hmm. And there's also a number of practical examples regarding primes and subcontractors, uh, an analysis that they expect to be done, that the DOJ expects to be done for such determination. So not the most interesting of topics, I don't, I don't know, but, uh, but at least helpful to have such a handbook as you're moving forward.
0: Okay. Thank you, Lorraine. And let's at least start the next category before we go to the break. The next is best picture.
1: Best picture what, Roger? Drama. Re- read all the notes, Roger. <laughs> okay, cool. well,
0: I'm not the best announcer. So. <laughs> well, and the, the best picture... It's my first d- time doing this, okay? I know it's a lot of pressure.
4: We'll
1: fix that in post-production. Uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> and, the, and the Roger goes to uh,
0: NDAA Section 846... Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you know what? On that note, oh, we don't it. have to take a break. <laughs> 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 <Son of> a- <laughs> so, so at least a cliffhanger, so to yeah. speak, right? Right. Uh, yeah. There we go. For a certain back. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, my guests today are Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Lorraine Campos from Crowell and Mooring, and Jason Workmaster from Covington and Brewing. And we're talking about the latest developments and procurement a.k.a. the Rogers. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are Jason Workmaster from Covington, Burling, Lorraine Campos from Kroll and Waring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, and Jonathan Ernie from Shepard Mullen. And we're going through the Legal Rogers, the awards for some of the most interesting developments and. In, uh, government legal uh, aspects of uh, government procurement and uh, Jonathan. When we took the break, uh, we had just announced the award for best picture drama, which was for Section Eight Forty Six from last year's NDAA. Um, so, tell us a little bit more about that and why sure. it got
1: the award. Sure, it, it is is very exciting. Uh, well, at least at least certainly impactful for for everybody. Um, whether it's exciting or not, I guess we can debate. So, for those. Few people who don't know S- section. You can section, say that about this whole topic area, I, I suppose right? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> section S- S- Section eight forty six is is the government's attempt to do something dramatically different with respect to the way the government purchases commercial uh, off the shelf goods. So, very brief background here um, for people who don't remember. It, it all started quite some time ago with a um, with a proposal from Representative Thornberry at the House. Um, to focus on on these um uh, e commerce portals uh reportedly marketplace yeah. and an easier way to purchase uh the house came up with some language that really uh at least in the first instance was very very narrowly tailored uh I- industry industry was quite animated about that there there was some language in the early proposal that was rather um t- the anti competitive um, the Senate ultimately well, Yeah, ultim- I can
0: say it. It's like it's the, it's the language says nearly tear to the point there's maybe been uh less than a handful of platforms that theoretically could provide the
1: service uh, to ab- the government. Absolutely. So. The the language ultimately went to the Senate and it was broadened uh, a little bit and and ultimately what came out in the uh in the ND- NDAA was which turned into section 846 was a direction to GSA and OMB to study the issue and to uh to create a three phase process uh to to figure out h- how to do this right and uh so I, what I want to do is just just w- walk briefly talk about the um the phase 1 which GSA and OMB have now gone through and I know my panelists here will have some stuff to add to this so uh after after working through this first phase GSA uh, really ra- rather than recommending a single approach GSA Recommended some combination, some mix of multiple approaches. the The way GSA described it is is its solution would be an an e commerce portal, an e marketplace portal, and an e procurement portal. And, and it's worth stating what those are. And the easiest way to understand it, I'll just use some random company names here because it does highlight for yeah, the listener what they are. Yeah. Right. So, so an e commerce portal would be having the government buy through existing. Portals like like a Staples or you know an office depot or a Granger type, you know, type existing online um website. And e-marketplace would be buying through something like Amazon where, where um multiple providers come together and Amazon itself sells. And then there's this eProcurement, this third model, which I think of as kind of software platform, like an Ariba software platform which can aggregate
0: and set business rules. Ab-
1: and absolutely. So, yeah. so GSA talked about those those three Three avenues, and the other thing they talked about, which i don 't think Congress likes too much is is having GSA run its own kind of portal of portals uh, last thing i 'll say here because we could you whole know, <coughs> have a whole show on, it, whole right? show on yep. this but um, is part of this importantly was to raise the micro purchase threshold for those who don 't know that's that 's really the point at which the government has to start thinking about things like competition uh, under the MPT. it doesn 't and the concept was to raise the MPT to twenty five thousand, which has huge implications. But but that that is a very controversial issue right now. What is the impact of such a significant increase
0: in the MPT? Right, and I'll I only add one thought to it. One of the RFI questions talk about well, trade agreements act of compliance mm-hmm. and those kind of things. So it's kind of you know ready fire aim kind of thing yeah. in a sense. Let's raise the threshold, then we'll ask the questions about. What compliance requirements should or shouldn't apply. Yeah, and, the,
2: and the compliance issues are the big questions here. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, phase one, you know, everyone's pushing through phase one, but I, I think really phase two, when we get to talking, getting really down to the nitty gritty about trade agreements, acts, socioeconomic provisions, all that kind of stuff, is when it's, I think we'll get a much better sense of whether this is all going to happen or not. Yeah. During absolutely. phase two. It's really yeah, the phase yeah. two is really like market research. Right, yeah. Basically,
4: once you get the MPT up, all kinds of requirements fall off the board, right? Mm-hmm. Just not just competition, but it's TAA, it's small business preferences, you name it, all mm-hmm. lost. Yeah. Well the
1: and and the the recent uh there was some recent letters to Congress written by the um National Association of Wholesalers, by the coalition, I think, has also at least been talking about this issue. I don't know if you've written a recent letter, but but what they've what they've pointed out. Is that the increase in the MPT has a dramatic impact on Buy Higher American, which is one of the president's mm-hmm. major executive orders, and and these two things really come head to head,
0: right? We what we did do is did a letter to GSA with a bunch of questions about the implementation plan, right, and um, ask them if they've studied it or yeah, if they're exactly to study that's it. what we did, right? Yes, absolutely. So let's go to the next category, best path uphill,
4: and the Roger goes to. The M-S-P-V-N-G-J-N-A. And this is the uh, word for that's two a, reasons. It's One, lots of, That's lots of letters. <laughs> right a of letters <laughs> for no real acronym, which is – I kind of love that. Uh, you got to throw in a few, like, vowels in there or something. Um, but what is this? This is the Surge Prime Vendor uh, Program run by the VA, the next generation of that. So there's the M-S-P-V-N-G. And then the J-N-A refers to a justification and approval done back in April – by the VA to expand the scope of certain distribution contracts that the VA has. Basically, what these contracts were for uh, are to take uh, medical surgical supplies, like scalpels, gloves, um, other equipment they use in a hospital, and to enable the various VA facilities to obtain those items through a prime vendor. Uh, The contracts previously called for just distribution of products at prices set by the VA. Uh, through use of existing vehicles or the award of BPAs. Um, and what this expansion would do would have the the distribu- distribution companies step further into the stream and help with the supply of the products, help determine the pricing of the products and – uh, and the reason for this, the reason why it's the path uphill, is the VA found itself needing some 80,000 items and only had about 8,000 items under contract. Um, and so what was on happening... On the formulary. Right. Right. Uh, so
3: that became a huge issue.
4: became a huge issue because what the, the program says is if the product's on the formulary, you should buy it through the prime vendors. If it's not, you as the VA medical facility can go outside. And so if only 8,000 are on... And 70-some thousand are out. A lot of uh, facilities are buying around it and, of course, paying in all likelihood a higher unit cost for those individual items. Um, And so what the J&A would do is allow the VA to expand the contract scope for a period of about two years until the next generation comes. And the big question here, I think, is what does that next generation look like? Is the VA going to be even more reliant on those prime vendors to set pricing? If so, this is sort of a step along the marketplace type idea that uh, Jonathan was talking about with 846. We see a shift in the balance between what the government does and what industry does. And the more industry does in terms of determining pricing or availability of products, you have less transparency um, into what the pricing would be or how those products are selected.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to watch it all play out because there are four prime vendors and they're all negotiating prices – with the suppliers and how you know, and it's just how that that, how that dance stage. all works across. If you're a supplier, you got to deal with four different
4: you got to see who the vendors, and then the VA and the, other the relationships. With and those that's those another interesting apart
3: thing apart that Roger is bringing up. So even though you know there are four prime vendors, they have relationships with the VA, but then some of them also have strong relationships for commercial prime mm-hmm. purchasing as well. So yeah. it's, which is the whole
4: reason to expand? Which the the in the first place because the VA needed the benefit of that expertise. But that expertise does pose the risk for certain tensions, let's say.
0: Well, it goes to, it's just fascinating, because it does relate back to, Dave, you mentioned 846, because there are issues there that Congress raised, even the idea of what do those commercial relationships between a buyer and a plat- platform provider, whatever um, type, how does that play into your yep. government business? How, you know, what, how do you address the quid pro quo kind of, though that was put in the legislation and talked about um, by um, lots of folks. Um Okay, so let's try to move on to – at least start the next category, which is the best sequel.
2: All right, and the best sequel, the Roger, for this category goes to United States X-Rel Foliard v. Comstore Corporation, which is a uh, decision out of the D.C. District Court. It's a false claims act decision. Uh, and for off the shelf aficionados, you've probably heard mention of Mr. Foliard's name in the past. Uh, this is a False Claims Act case. So it was, uh, for listeners who have heard us discuss False Claims Act cases before, this is a civil, this is the government's principal tool for fighting fraud. Uh, and it allows private uh, individuals to bring cases in the name of the government. Well, that's Mr. Foliard here. Mr. And those are called key Tams. They're called key Tams. Yes. Uh, colloquially, he's called a whistleblower. Um, Mr. Foliard is what we would call a serial relator. Uh, serial referring not to Cheerios. Serial referring to an, over and over and over again, uh, Mr. Foliard has sued, I think at this point, pretty much the entire IT industry. So... Uh, he has had uh, uh, a stunning, a stunning lack of success. Uh,
0: and you know what? We'll leave it right there, and you can uh, <laughs> oh, you can question. explain <laughs> his lack of success. When we come back to if we want to cut Mr. Foliard off for a moment, okay. <laughs> and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about his lack of success. Uh, my guests today: are Jason Workmaster from Covington, Burling; uh, Lorraine Campos from Kroll and Mooring; David Dowd from Mayor Brown, and Jonathan Ernie from Shepard Mullen. It's the Big Four. And we're talking about legal developments in government procurement. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today my guests are Jonathan Ernie from Shepard Mullen, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Lorraine Campos from Crowley Mooring, and Jason Workmaster from Covington and Burling and Jason, you know we I interrupted your discussion of foliard, so i'm going to let you continue. go right oh, ahead. thank you very much. Why much. was it a lack of success well Mr.
2: The- Mr foliard's basic allegation has always been the same in all these cases he's brought, so uh, his his allegation has been various companies have been selling product to the government that does not i t companies have been selling product to the government that does not comply with the trade agreements Act. Uh, And for uh, listeners who've been listening for a while, we've talked also about that act in the past. Uh, The Trade Agreements Act, uh, which has flowed down into government contracts uh, through a FAR clause, uh, requires that uh, products sold to the government come come only from certain designated countries. Uh, One of those designated countries is not uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, One of those designated countries also is not India. Uh, Also not on the list is Russia. Uh, Mr. Foliard, uh, his basic contention has been that all kinds of IT product that's been made in China has been being sold to the government by various companies. Uh, So he brought another case uh, here in D.C., sued a company, uh, uh, Comstore, uh, alleging that Comstore had sold product that did not comply with the Trade Agreements Act to the government. Uh, And Comstore came in uh, and said – Yeah. He, he's going to, he loses right out of the box. As soon as he, you know, his, his, he files the complaint comes and the way this process works. He files his complaint. It's filed under seal. Uh, The government has the option to, the government investigates and the government then has the option to uh, either step in and take over the case or not. Uh, And if it, if they don't, then the whistleblower, Mr. Foliard is able to go and litigate the case on his own, comes out from under seal. Well, in this case, the government did not intervene. That's another example of uh, Mr. Foliard's stunning lack of success over time. He's never had the, uh, never been able to convince the government uh, to intervene in one of his cases. Um, and uh, so the uh, defendant Comstore uh, says, "You're out of here, uh, Foliard. Um and uh, says a number of very. Vari- it makes a number of arguments. Um, I'm going to concentrate on their argument that, that the argument that they made that the their fail- that their alleged non-compliance with the Trade Agreements Act was not a material noncompliance, And if you've heard us talk before about False Claims Act cases, False Claims Act issues, materiality is a required element of a False Claims Act case. So if, you know, whether it's the government or a relator that's coming in, they've got to come in and make a showing, not just that something was false, not just that, you know, and even if it was knowingly false, they've got to show that the falsity made a difference, that the falsity made a difference to the government's decision to pay out money. And here, uh, the uh, defendant pointed to uh, a letter, actually a very interesting letter, that GSA had sent out to its schedule contractors. This is all happening under the GSA schedules. Um, sent out to its schedule contractors that said, you know, guys, if, if you d- determine that you have an issue with Trade Agreements Act noncompliance, come talk to us. We'll, 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 let's, let's talk. And the court latched on to that letter. And said, look, GSA has told its contractors that uh, if you have a problem with uh, Trade Agreements Act compliance, come talk to us. They did not say, if you have a problem, you're immediately out of here. We're never paying you another penny again. You know, you're going to jail. They didn't say that. And so the court said, given GSA's own statements... Uh, and what was, you know, the relator was just saying. I could Go say look
0: GSA's reasonableness. Yes,
2: yes. Look, look at what. The, and also, the court pointed very interestingly to the government's decision not to intervene in the case. And they said, when the government doesn't intervene, that they suggest they almost they, they pretty much come out and say that's going to be a heightened materiality analysis that they're going to look to uh, that they're going to do to uh, uh, of a relator's allegation. So it was a very interesting case. That, uh, other interesting things in the case about. Falsity and and uh, and, uh, and knowledge, uh, but really uh, this this materiality issue is I think the the most the most interesting thing out of the case.
3: Right. But isn't it interesting as as Roger was mentioning the GSA was trying I would assume to be reasonable here right instead of instead of having contractors realize I have a. A product they may not be TA compliant. Take it off without you know determining kind of you know if there's any additional liability or kind of what the step should be or finding giving the GSA an opportunity to find a substitute product. They you know I think the GSA was being reasonable by the come talk to me mm-hmm. letter. Yeah. yeah. And well, the court's determination, the, cost, the court's reliance on that really puts I think the GSA in a difficult position to you know have that stance moving forward.
2: Right.
1: We've we, we we we've seen that so often though. You 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 frequently see contracting officers being very realistic, very reasonable, understanding what's important and what isn't. But then what happens is you know a year, two years, three years later, an auditor or DOJ come in and they say, "Oh, contracting officer, this this must have been critical to your decision, right?" Right. Yeah. Or or did you violate the rules? Mm-hmm. And you know they ask questions that way, and and all of a sudden you know the the
0: recollections change. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the uh, next uh, category: the best adaptation of a congressional direction. Lorraine,
3: well, that Roger is the D. Forest final rule that was published in uh, February of this year. Um, the final rule implemented. Wait for it. Fiscal the NDAA's directions from fiscal year 2013, 2016, and twenty eighteen. And this, as you, as a title, um, as a title provided. It results from congressional pressure to reduce barriers to entry for commercial contractors and streamline commercial item procurement procedures. You'll see a theme here. This kind of coincides with the, um, the guidebook for aqu- acquiring commercial items, which we talked about earlier in the program. Um, so the final rule does not, which is odd, does not address changes required for the 2017 NDAA. Um, so it's kind of, I guess, jumping around uh, to address some of the older changes that needed to be adopted. Uh, the key elements of the final rule that became um, uh, effective earlier this year was reliance on prior commercial item determinations. We're going to talk about that. Conversion of acquisition from commercial to non-commercial, special treatment for non-traditional defense contractors, requiring information to support price reasonableness, pricing analysis techniques, and changes to rules for major um, weapon systems. I think the most interesting thing is for prior determination. So, in the 2016 NDAA, it amended Tina uh, to establish a presumption that prior commercial item determinations by military defense or other components of DoD—I'm quoting here, air quotes—shall serve as a determination for subsequent. Uh, we all saw those. Air oh yeah, here. thank <laughs> you. <laughs> subsequent procurements of such items. So basically, what the what this um, this D final rule does is it allows a former military defense department or other DoD component to make a commercial. Item determination and then have, you know, and then have another uh, defense entity rely on that, which is lovely and, and, you know, creates a solution for uh, many, many commercial contractors. But it also is limiting in the fact that it doesn't allow, for example, GSA or, you know, any other non-DOD entity to uh, make such a determination and have that relied on in in, – in subsequent procurement. so in a way, I think that the DFARS final rule, and that's just one aspect of it, addresses many of the issues that are necessary, but certainly could go further to be um, supportive of and provide guidance. Better, I think, better support for many of our commercial contractors.
0: So one agency's commercial item may not be another agency's commercial. Exactly, item. exactly.
3: Yeah. So you know you can't you don't you don't get to you know, check all those boxes.
0: Right, and that's always has always been a tension between. DSA schedules and D, the DoD
2: customer
4: yeah and, and it
2: also still leaves open the possibility that that the DoD agency will request substantial information other than cost of pricing data to justify the reasonableness of proposed pricing yeah. I mean it does have a hierarchy where it doesn't start with that mm-hmm. but it's still there you know right. I mean it's, it's, so and I you know, I think this is another instance of uh, uh, DoD, you know, Congress over the last several years has been trying. I, I think fairly clearly saying we want commercial contracting to be easier, faster. We really like commercial contracting. We want to entice Silicon Valley to contract with the government. They haven't had a lot of success with that. Meanwhile, the DoD itself is, I think, through things like this rule, is not exactly on board with the message. Yeah, I think well, they're, it's, it's they're kind of being pulled. Right? They're
3: saying, you know, we're on we're. <laughs> Only we're only on board to the to the point of we're within our agencies, yeah. Right?
0: right? Yeah. So let's let's at least start the next one. It's the best picture suspense. And, and this, is is suspense, right? uh, <laughs> wait, this is a suspense, right? Uh, at <laughs> <wait. laughs> I had, I had a moment, next so go quiet. Had, pause there. Yeah, I know I was. You did, that was very effective. I was suspenseful, thank yeah.
1: you. <laughs> uh, And the Roger goes to the return of the suspension debarment official. Where did they go? Uh, uh, Excellent. uh, Well, the question is where have they been previously and, and why are they coming back now? Well, but I, I'm looking at these. I feel like you're going to interrupt me like right before the most important part of this, but I'm just going to keep going. No, no, I'm just I think go you're strong. right.
0: I think I am going to interrupt <laughs> you. So, so. How did I know? So, um, so I, yeah, and uh, so we'll have to come back oh, and you'll have to darn. give us that most important part, uh, Jonathan. My guests today are Jonathan Ernie from Shepard Mullen, David Dadd from Mayor Brown, Lorraine Campos from & and Mooring, and Jason Workmaster from Covington and Burling. And we're talking legal. Uh, awards the rogers here on off the shelf federal news radio 1500 a.m
3: brought to you by cgi a global leader in it business process and professional services cgi partners with federal agencies to provide end-to-end solutions for defense civilian and intelligence missions in areas such as cybersecurity, cloud and big data experience the commitment at cgi.com slash u.s federal
0: Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are Jason Workmaster from Covington and Burling, Lorraine Campos from Crowell and Mooring, David Dow from Mayor Brown, and Jonathan Ernie from Shepard Mullen. And uh, at the close of the last segment, we, we in just had announced the best picture suspense. And uh, I know I had to cut you off when you were going to talk about suspend, suspension and debarment officials. So please continue, Jonathan. Sure.
1: Yeah, we we were talking the, the return of the suspension debarment official and and just to to set the stage a little bit or l- lay the groundwork everyone should remember suspension debarment is we think of it as kind of the death penalty of government contracting, right? If you're suspended or debarred, you can no longer sell to the federal government, probably no longer sell to states and localities, probably no longer sell to prime contractors. So this is this is a really big deal. And I, I think just to highlight some of the changes, everyone should remember that Remember, the government's only allowed to contract with responsible contractors. Re- responsible parties is a key concept here. Suspensions and debarments are really one of the ways the government makes sure it is contracting with companies that are responsible. And, and this, is a, this is a highly discretionary act. These suspension debarment officials have an awful lot of discretion as to, as to uh, who, the, who the government can contract with or not. And last thing to keep in mind, which is going to sound really strange, is a suspension, debarment. Even though it can put you out of business, is not viewed by the government as a punishment. It's viewed as protection for for future problems. It's, it's kind of a is that weird punishment fiction. in air quotes. Air quotes there, again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of a, this strange fiction that we all that we all kind of run with. Um, so what what I what the reason we put this one on the list is because the suspension and debarment officials have been around for a long time, but but for years and years. They really weren't that, that active. Uh, Congress, over the past, I don't know, five to seven years maybe, has really been beating up the suspension and debarment officials to become more active. And and, and we have all seen that happening. We, we have seen, especially over the last two, three, or four years, co- uh, contractors being called before a suspension and debarment official to show cause why they should not be debarred far more frequently. And, and when you look at the data, you see suspensions are trending up. Proposed debarments are trending up, debarments are trending up, and there's, and there's, I think the best way to think about this is, is the types of matters that we are seeing end you up in front of a suspension debarment official have broadened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So like, uh, let's say in the past, uh, J- J- so Jason talked about False Claims Act cases. In the past, if you settled a False Claims Act case, that was often the end of it. But now you are much more likely, after you've resolved your False Claims Act case, and you're thinking everything's Mm hunky-dory, then being called in front of a suspension debarment official to explain why, even though you've settled that, you should be allowed to continue.
2: And if you try to talk to the Justice Department about resolving your suspension and debarment issues in the the settlement agreement, (laughs) what you will hear is that that's not their issue.
1: Right, right. It's explicitly carved out of every DOJ settlement agreement. So... So now you are more likely to end up there, but DOJ still won't, can't resolve it. Uh, Some of the other things that can more likely end you up in front of a suspension department official now, uh, even things like um, if there's a major article about your company in the newspaper, if it's a major negative article, that could, you know, a suspension department official could see that and say, I'd like you to come in and explain this to me. Um, Had one where an employee of the company um, was was alleged to have stolen something and and ultimately convicted of that and that caused the company to be brought in before the
2: suspension department official terminations for default yeah. So, absolutely yeah and
0: isn't there i mean you say these trends are all up yeah going up and isn't there i mean there's the the things that aren't measured though too right like how much it costs mm-hmm. just to deal with just to say you know don't suspend no, don't yeah, bars, right. The like even, the report, you mean the, all the things right. that companies have to do True. to respond. And one of
4: the things that I think we've all seen and experienced is sometimes a company has to be proactive and go in and see that SDO, and that's an awkward conversation. You don't want to be called into the principal. You want to be proactive and go in there and and talk ahead of time. That is a is a tense area for companies. I, I think
1: I think it's a very very good point, and and the GSA suspension debarment official is very consistent on saying that. Uh, you know, she says. Come to me before I come to you. And I, and I, I got to give her credit for this. She she absolutely is true to her word that that she gives you a fair shake uh, when you come in. Even if you're in the middle of a case, she will not force you to talk about the specific facts and legal arguments of your case until it's over. Um, I, I don't know if I can say every agency SDO does that. but But for commercial items companies, GSA is the one they're likely to be in front of. And she's, she's very serious when she says, come, come talk to me in advance.
0: All right. Okay. Let us, let us move on to the next category, which is best Star Wars reprise. Is that Can how you say it right? reprise? Yeah. reprise? Reprise?
4: is how you say it. And the, the Roger goes to Jedi, which is the joint enterprise. May Manoprise. the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We should have taken this on May Force. Yeah, <laughs> <yes. laughs> joint enterprise defense infrastructure, J-E-D-I, Jedi. Um, and so, uh, Jedi, what JEDI is, is a planned, not yet uh, released, but a planned RFP from DoD for uh, cloud, commercial cloud hosting services. Um, the plan, at least as announced, um, is for a single award IDIQ contract uh, that would be valued by various estimates a uh, billion and a half over the next few years, maybe up, even up to 10 billion over the 10 year life of the contract. Um, what's interesting about this? Um, a couple things. One, the procurement has now been placed on hold indefinitely while DoD studies it, in response to a lot of industry pushback about the single award nature of, of the contract. And I think what you see here, when you look at Jedi and other procurements as well, is that you know Congress has put into into effect a preference, a very strong preference, in fact, a requirement to award uh, multiple contracts when an agency decides to use an IDIQ contracting approach, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracting approach. Um, And notwithstanding that statutory requirement that an agency proceed to make multiple awards, there has been a trend, a decided trend, over time in which DOD has made single awards rather than multiple awards. Um, GAO did a study back in May, found that, you know, 60% of the time, DOD has been awarding uh, single award IDIQs rather than multiple awards. JEDI would be another instance of that. There's another DOD procurement uh, contemplated called DIOS, the Defense Enterprise Office Solutions. Uh, which is another cloud-type contract um, for uh, software as a service that also is a single award. Uh, so it's a pretty decided trend towards single award So, so just let me,
0: let me get this in my head here. It's like they're doing all these single award... Sort of, uh, cloud Silos, right. silo cloud um, contracts that collectively are like a, a multiple. I mean, they look like a multiple. there multiple it's like, options. It's multiple cloud multiple providers different. in the department. Why not just do a, you know, multiple board IDIQ to start out?
4: It Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's the preference in the statute. You see, let's if you're going to have task orders, right, or delivery orders, basically serial. Um, orders coming out over time, why not have competition under a common vehicle to do that? Um, and so JEDI right now is on hold. We'll see where it goes. We'll see if this speaks to a larger trend in the treatment of uh, single awards versus multiple awards.
0: Right. I do have a question too about, um, so there's some language floating around on the Hill is interesting. I don't know if it's in the Senate, NDAA, but the idea that, um, as you guys know, um, if you do a uh, IDIQ contract over 112 million dollars. You have to do a written justification, and there's the prongs in terms of you know you're not going to do a public interest exception. Um, you know that's a commercial item that you know, there's a series of, but one of the the test is that the tasks are are so integrally related. That only one contractor could reasonably perform the requirement as a justification for having a single award, so there's proposal to change that language to say it's more efficient essentially um, mm-hmm. any as opposed to uh, you know yeah which seems to me a different you know a lowering yeah. a threshold yeah, the, the substantially, um, lower, yeah.
4: substantially lower threshold yeah, I think that the problem there is you're you're begging the very question that the multiple awards would answer right right if if, if the theory that's efficiency. Is that the price would be lower? Well, that's what competition for the multiple orders would get. Um, if the efficiency advantage is the an interest in avoiding the requirements definition that you would have, you know, if you want to award a compete multiple among multiple vehicles, you have to define your requirements pretty clearly. If you have a single award, you might not. It may look more efficient to avoid that step. That to me doesn't sound like the kind of efficiency we would be interested
0: in. All right yeah and just what's the total acquisition cost? i mean you, there's all kinds of ways to look at it and slice it it it's definitely a a lowering of the bar yeah. in terms of what's required right. it's almost like they can't justify you uh, what you know it, you know to the extent it's the the department's approach can't justify under the current statute so let's change the rules right right? right so um i want to thank my guest today, Lorraine Campos from Crowell and mooring, David Dowd from mayor Brown. Jason Workmaster from Covington and Burling, and Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen for, for a great show. I appreciate it, guys. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition
1: for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, Only on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com.